From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. We need people to voluntarily fill in the returns and send them in because otherwise the whole system collapses. And that's why, you know, you see the IRS going after entertainers, you know, high profile people where they're really making a statement that you have to comply with your taxes. And by going after people who are household names, Wesley Snipes, Lauren Hill, Willie Nelson, or the IRS is trying to really address that concern that everyday people are the only ones who are paying tax. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Last month, the New York Times released a series of stories on President Trump's taxes that were revelatory. Miami Law's tax expert Patricia Brown walks us through where U.S. tax law has come from and where it's going. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Trisha. Welcome to The Explainer. Thanks for having me, Catherine. I appreciate it. Um, So our current tax code is a 2,600-page wildly complex document of rules and some would say frustration. The New York Times called it an archaeological record of special interest politics chiseled out over time with giveaways under the cover of achieving social goals like subsidized childcare, home ownership, healthcare, higher education, and more. So my first question is, in short, how do we get here? Well, the New York Times is not wrong, right? We have a concept of income that economists have developed it over time. In the U.S., it's called the Haig-Simons idea of income. And that's simply um, what you consume and what you save. Mm -hmm. And so and the increase in the store of rights that you have in savings. Right. So if you think of your paycheck, what do you do with your paycheck? You spend some of it, probably spend most of it for most of us, and you save a little bit. And then what you save increases in value. So basically, if you have increases in value, that's income. And if you are spending it, it's also income. So so that gets us to the first thing, which is If your house increases in value every year, you have income under Haig-Simons. But we've decided we're not going to tax that each year because it's complicated. It's hard to value. We don't tax people on income they have if they haven't received cash so they can pay the taxes. So that what we call the realization requirement, you don't have gains from your investment until you sell them in most cases, is one of the complicating factors. Okay. So so here you have a deviation from the concept of income that has perfectly rational basis, uh, policy reasons. But what I tell my students is every time they have Haig-Simon's income, they should think about why we're not taxing that. We should assume it's going to be taxed. But if it's not tax, we should think about why that is, right? So gifts are not taxable. Gifts are clearly Haig-Simon's income. 
Why don't we tax it? Well, there are a lot of gifts that are given away in the family context. There's the valuation problem. Maybe you don't love that painting that your aunt gave you, uh, even though it has a high value. And so we start deviating from Haig-Simons for good reasons. But we also have, and the New York Times points this out, we have special interests. We have lots of provisions that are in there for particular um, entities, right? We have an exception for nonprofits. We have an exception for, or a deduction for contributions to nonprofits. So we're trying to actually um, achieve goods for society through our tax code. Now, you could say, look, don't give a deduction, just let the government decide which nonprofit entities are doing good. Well, that's pretty political. And people would rather have that in the hands of individuals than in the hands of the government. And I don't think that's wrong. I, I think there's a certain amount of um, decision-making that we can give to individuals in that area. And so we make those sorts of decisions. Then we decide to try to get people to buy hybrid vehicles or environmentally conscious vehicles. That's not something the tax code should do. If you want people to do that, just cut them a check. But it is easier politically in many cases to hide things in the tax code than to actually be upfront about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. There's a provision that was to benefit or what the primary beneficiary of this provision for many years was a tuna, tuna cannery, I think, in American Samoa. Uh -huh. And when I was a treasurer, I had a meeting with an assistant secretary from Interior who wanted us to support keeping the provision in the code to support this tuna cannery. And I said, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with taxes. That's a subsidy. It should be in the budget. And he said, we will never get it passed if it's in the budget. It needs to be in the tax code. Mm -hmm. And those are the, you know, that is one glaring example, but it shows we're trying to do a lot of societal engineering through the code, when all we should be trying to do is raise taxes. Okay. Um, so I think broadly people believe Maybe not everyone, but broadly, people believe that today's tax code benefits the rich and the well-connected who work really hard at expanding and exploiting loopholes. And the rest of us chumps have no clue, but collectively spend like a billion hours a year complying. Am, am I just too cynical? Well, you're a little cynical. <laughs> <laughs> but... That is really, it's really dangerous. And I think Congress and the administration, whoever the administration is, has to be very careful about that. Um, and that is our system relies on people filing their taxes voluntarily. Now we have a lot of information reporting, right? If you have interest income that you receive from a bank and it doesn't show up on your tax return, you'll be getting a communication from the IRS that says, we think you forgot something. Mm -hmm. So 
So for a lot of individuals, most of their income is reported to the IRS. And so um, the compliance is fairly easy. Even things like your mortgage deductions are reported to the IRS. Right. There are some countries where the code is so simple, their tax code is so simple that the tax authorities actually fill out the return and send it to people and say, tell us if we've gotten something wrong. Um, that is not something I think you can do in the U.S. because things are simple. Now, what doesn't get reported to the IRS? Income from business. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of tax evasion um, really is centered around cash-rich businesses. Right? If you ever go to a bar and you hand or a store and you hand somebody a bill, Mm-hmm. And they just put it on the cash register and give you your change. Mm-hmm. They've just skimmed. That's tax evasion. Most likely. Mm-hmm. Right. Why would you not bring it up in your cash register unless you're keeping a second set of books? So that is a real challenge for the IRS. And the IRS has been going after that. So so businesses where the income is not reported to the IRS are, is sort of where a lot of tax evasion takes place. Um, but we need people to voluntarily fill in the returns and send them in because otherwise the whole system collapses. And that's why, in my view, you, know, you see the IRS going after entertainers mm-hmm. and athletes you know, high profile people where um, they're really making a statement that you have to comply with your taxes. And by going after people who are household names, Wesley Snipes, Lauren Hill, Willie Nelson, you're trying to, or the IRS is trying to really address that concern that everyday people are the only ones who are paying taxes. Okay. Now, um, And the IRS recently uh, announced that it had gone over, you know, going, they have gone after a businessman for the largest individual tax adjustment in history. It was about $2 billion uh, of somebody who was using offshore entities to hide their income. So again, those high profile announcements are to keep the rest of us convinced that the the playing field is not quite as unlevel uh, as you might think. The other point to make is that for most developed countries, the amount of income of, of tax revenue generated from corporations is less than 10% of total government revenues. Okay. Uh, and largely that's because, you know, Corporate earnings are taxed at the corporate level, and they're taxed again when they're paid to investors. And so some of the reduction in taxes uh, at the corporate level has been to eliminate that double taxation of corporate profits. Other countries do do it other ways, uh, but it's part of the reason that tax rates have been dropping. Developing countries generate a lot more income from taxing corporations. Uh, because they may have more difficulties taxing at the investor level than we do. So um, there's a 
there's a good theoretical argument for why corporations shouldn't be taxed at all. Uh, but I think that most people think that corporations should pay tax. So there are different, you know, there, there, it's a complicated picture. Um, and I think, you know, what generated this was the New York Times article on President Trump's taxes. And, you know, it is true that people who invest in real estate, and I think we can assume that that generally includes higher level uh, income, you know, taxpayers with higher levels of income, mm-hmm. they generally do run losses. Um, because we have a very generous depreciation deduction and you receive deductions for utilities and taxes and interest. And so real estate businesses generally do run at a loss. Mm-hmm. I can testify to that. I had some rental properties. I had tax losses. And the idea is that you make it up when you sell the property at a gain mm-hmm. and then you tax the gain. And so I think, um, you know, those returns have gotten a lot of attention. There's one thing I'd like to point out, and there was a there was a second New York Times article that was not technically part of that series, I think, that looked at the. Um, Yes. The, what is it? Seventy thousand uh, dollar write off for for hair. Seventy. Yeah, seventy thousand dollars. First of all, let me tell your listeners: do not try this at home. <laughs> but but I want to defend the IRS a little bit about this because this is this is clear. These are personal expenses. Um, if you deducted them, they weren't deductible. There were higher expenses for Ivanka. Interestingly enough. <laughs> She, if she deducted them, they were not deductible. But and and if they were reimbursed, they certainly should not have been deductible. Right. Having said that, if you look at the total picture, the you know it de- it sh- it shows that there were losses forever. There were no taxes due mm-hmm. eventually. And so millions of dollars of losses. And so, you know, the IRS frequently says, look, there's no tax to collect here. Mm -hmm. Looking at the big picture. So I'm not going to go through and look at individual deductions. I'm going to go and try to tax the person who actually has taxable income. So, you know, the, the shorter New York Times piece showed, said it was really about the fact that, you know, it was an attitude towards taking deductions that was very telling. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the greater scheme of things, it was pretty minor. Right. Interesting. Um, was there a time in the United States when when taxes were fairly and equally collected? And, and can we ever realistically return to some system that that feels more just what what would that look like is that at all likely i think there was a nanosecond after the <laughs> 1986 act when people thought it was reasonably fair mm-hmm. 
And that was because the government, the you know, Treasury had put out several proposals. The Congress had considered things um, for years. Mm-hmm. Right? There was there was Treasury one. There and then there, there was some work on the Hill, and then there was Treasury two, and then there were bills, and and they were worked through. But that was because there was, you know, the 1981 Act really eliminated taxation for a lot of rich people and most corporations. Mm -hmm. And Don Regan, who was the secretary of the treasury at the time, this was before my time, but I've been told this story and read about it, went to President Reagan and said, we did too much. We cut taxes too much in 1981. We have to figure out something to do. And so the 86 Act was really a corrective to that. Mm What it did was it broadened the base. It got rid of a lot of tax preferences. It got rid of the preference for capital gains and lowered rates substantially. Okay. Uh, there was a time when the highest ta- individual tax rate in the United States was in the 90s. Uh, and not that long ago, it was in the 70s. And so mm-hmm. bringing it down to the 30s was a substantial reduction for a lot of people. And they were willing to give up their tax preferences for that. But now that we're in a generally lower tax environment, mm-hmm. you know, there's not a lot of appetite for really expanding the base because the reductions you'll get in ex- exchange for that will not be as significant. You're not going to go from 70% to 30. You're going to go from 36 to 32 taking numbers out of a hat. And that's what we saw in 2017. Those individual rate reductions were not that significant in exchange for giving up some benefits like the state and local tax deduction. That's Mm -hmm. why people are screaming. Mm -hmm. um, That you didn't have the generous trade-offs that you had in 1986. And so I think it's difficult. Right. I mean, I think people are fairly convinced that if if Joe Biden wins, the tax rates will go up. Uh, and that's in an attempt to make things more fair. Um, more balanced, you know, the fights are the initial fights are always over how progressive. The rates and brackets are going to be because okay. those are quick and easy fights to have. Mm-hmm. The more structural things take a longer time after administration takes office. Okay. So so Biden says he'll increase taxes on high earners and large corporations as a way to to grow the economy. Trump says that it'll derail economic recovery and it'll push companies offshore. So who's right or who's more right? It, you know. It it depends on where you're sitting. I think I think Joe's. Well, one thing is, if you put money in the hands of people who need it, mm-hmm. they will spend it. Right. Our economy is based on people consuming. Um, right. That's why you saw the economy actually doing reasonably well this summer, because people were getting still had money. Some of them mm-hmm. had more money because of the. per week additional unemployment benefit. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So so part of the idea of changing the rate structure so that higher earners pay more and people at the lower end of the spectrum pay less is so that they have money to spend to keep the economy going. So it's basically, do you trust the, the consumers to run the economy or the Republican approach, which is, OK, if we put more money in the pocket of the rich people, that will trickle down. Remember that phrase? Uh, to people further down who will then spend it. Uh, And so, you know, there have been lots of studies that call into question whether there's really any trickle-down effect. I think what we've seen this year is that if you put money in the hands of lower-income people, they're not going to save it, they're going to spend it, uh, and that will keep the economy going. Mm, Okay. Um, Anything to add in closing? Tax of 101 here. This is great. That's right. Putting an entire semester worth of tax (laughs) into one uh, 20-minute call. You know, I think that I don't think any party um, has an exclusive on the truth. I think there's a blend. Mm -hmm. I think you have to do a range of things. But I think we have the tools to get to a more fair system, right? We can get to something closer to Haig-Simons if people have the will to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can't just, you know, one of the the issues with the 2017 Act was that a lot of the changes in terms of base broadening hit just the blue states and not the red states. Mm -hmm. That is not the approach that was taken in 1986. And I think to have sort of a lasting agreement, you really have to have, you know, as somebody said, everybody took a hit in 1986 and everybody got some benefit. Uh, And so, you know, if you can do a tax reform that benefits everybody a little bit and hurts everybody a little bit, then it's more likely to be lasting. Um, like a good divorce agreement. Everybody's unhappy. Exactly right. Well, another enlightening discussion. I really appreciate your time, Tisha. It's, it's always a pleasure, Catherine. I will see you around. <laughs> Someday. Yeah. See you around. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's Heckerling Graduate Program in Estate Planning. With the aging baby boomer generation setting the stage for the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in history, Heckerling is there to meet the demand for training attorneys in the increasing complexity of individual and estate planning. For more information, visit law.miami.edu and search for Heckerling. Heckerling.